Good day. This is the 15th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. Over the last days, I've gotten the chance to speak with community activists in different parts of the United States. I really wanted to talk to people on the ground, organizing in communities, involved in struggles for social justice, on what the 2020 election in the United States looked like, uh, the ways that people were organizing, and the ways that mobilizing to vote against Trump intersected with their daily work uh, in struggles for justice within their communities. Um, as we know, in many states uh, that voted against Trump, uh, Arizona, Michigan, uh, it seems Georgia, the sustaining efforts of community activists were central to that process. Um, community activists involved in uh, struggles for migrant justice, uh, for uh, economic equality, for the rights of workers, um, for environmental justice. And um, although that uh, push, that um, movement by um, progressive community activist networks has been mentioned in a lot of the corporate news coverage of the election, what we haven't seen is discussions with activists on the ground, uh, within communities, uh, those who are organizing to vote against Trump. Um, and I highlight the term vote against Trump because I think it's really important to recognize uh, the fact that people were voting um, not necessarily in support of the president-elect Biden, but in fact voting um, to uh, express their rejection of the Trump administration's policies. And we'll hear that um, perspective laid out in a lot of the interviews on the podcast today. So thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you uh, today. This is the um, 15th edition of the podcast, and uh, I hope you're doing well. So I wanted to start with a interview I did with Abril Garado from Lucha, Arizona. Uh, Lucha is an organization that um, has long mobilized for the rights of uh, immigrant communities, for undocumented people in Arizona. They were central to the struggle uh, to vote out um, Sheriff Arpaio, an infamous uh, police sheriff uh, who was a very strong ally of the President Donald Trump. Um, and I wanted to talk with a member of Lucha about their efforts. Uh, they had publicly uh, campaigned uh, strongly against Trump and worked to get out the vote. Uh, they registered over one million people uh, to, um, to vote uh, in Arizona. So here's our conversation. I uh, spoke with Abril in Phoenix. Lucha is a grassroots organization um, that was founded in 2010 as a response of anti-immigrant laws, as we can say, and for the last decade, we've been working with communities across the state um, to march on the streets for economic and racial justice. Uh, and we've also um, passed legislature in terms of proposition to raise the minimum wage in Arizona. And we've also run one of the largest electoral programs in our state. Um, so you'll find us on the streets, but you also find us in the state legislature 
advocating for for our members. Um, Lucha is a statewide organization. Um, again, that has members from different walks of life, uh, from immigrant communities to working class uh, folks. Um, and we believe um, in racial and economic uh, equity for, for Arizonans. Your struggles um, on the ground in the community have really focused on um, articulating uh, a vision for migrant rights and for the dignity of all people. Uh, in Arizona, this is so important. Can you talk a bit about why uh, your organization, Lucha, has linked um, mobilizing for the, for the election um, with your day-to-day -day community organizing? Yes. So in 2010, when Arizona when uh, in Arizona SB 1070 was signed, we knew that if we wanted to prevent laws like those to ever happen again in our state, we needed to change the electoral electorate. And um, people started registering people to vote and people who nobody else had ever talked to, nobody else had ever asked them or showed them even how to vote, even though they were eligible to vote. Um, and so since then, um, we um, have understand that um, voting and um, voting and in in general it's a way to elect people that we can co-govern with um, people that at times we need to still hold accountable, but also people um, like State Representative Raquel Teran, which was a former community organizer, and so. We believe that while um, that voting is uh, the vehicle uh, for us to elect folks who will be advocating for our community's uh, best interests, uh, but we also know that voting is not all the answer, that we must continue to engage. Um, and that's what we do for the last 10, um, for the last decade, we have been talking to these voters, um, not just in election season, but all year round, um, talking to them about what are the things that are happening in their neighborhoods, in their cities, um, and, and finding uh, ways to pivot that energy into actual doing something to change that. And so um, I think one, one thing has been clear uh, in Arizona is that um, communities of color, indigenous, and black communities have been ignored um, in terms of resources by the main political parties, um, and that organizations like Lucha and many others in the state have had to step in to fill out that gap. But and we know it's working because um, you know you saw already historic turnout here in the state, and also. You know, we're still waiting for all the votes to be counted across the country. Um, it is clear that in Arizona, we can already celebrate a few local victories. And that's all because of the power of the Latino community, uh, the black community, indige indigenous community, and other communities of color um, that have come out and showed up uh, because we've been talking to them and we have built the trust um, for them to, um, even though they might not have the best the candidate they wanted, um, they knew that 
uh, you know, voting for Joe Biden was uh, definitely an opportunity for our communities versus keeping another four years of the current administration. Um, just for people who aren't, aren't aware, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, for people who aren't aware of the series of laws that have passed in Arizona over the last, um, not just the last few years, but over uh, more than a decade now, um, can you just detail uh, some of those laws and, and why you've opposed them in regards to defending the dignity and the human rights of, um, of migrants uh, and immigrant communities, just for listeners who might not be following the details here in Montreal and, and Quebec? Definitely. Um, Arizona um, has been notorious because in some shape or other, we have had our own Trumps before Trump. We call them Trumpistas, which means little Trumps. Um, we had, uh, you know, Russell Pierce, which was the author of SB 1070, one of the most outrageous, racist, anti-immigrant law uh, that we've seen um, in the country. Um, it's also known as the Show Me Your Papers law, where it will basically give the power to any um, public uh, official to uh, question your status um, if they thought you could be in this country uh, undocumented, which, you know, opened the door for a lot of um, racism and uh, discrimination. This meant that a teacher could call ICE. This meant that a doctor could call ICE. This meant that parents on their way to school could be pulled over just because they were brown, just because they had a, you know, a car speaker in their native language, or they were listening to music. And so um, this law, I was able to, some of the portion, the majority of this portion was able to be stopped um, throughout these years by communities, um, but the same communities whom this law target. But, um, but we also seen um, that after that, um, the political power that Latino voters have been built have also helped us stop just last year um, a wave of anti-immigrant, another wave of anti-immigrant bills here on our state. Um, what we've also seen, though, is that the same power, the same people, the same voters who have helped us stop laws like SB 1070 or Senate Bill SB 1070 has also helped us you know, defeat Joe Arpaio, um, which was one of the enforcers of SB 1070, um, has, has also helped us win Prop 206, which raised the minimum wage in Arizona. And we are hopeful um, and excited because those same people are the ones who have now showed up um, for immigrant families, for immigrant rights in our state. Thank you so much. Um, just um, another brief uh, question. Uh, your organization has made really clear a link between um, um, the defense of working people and immigrant rights, um, making clear um, how much labor in Arizona is done by immigrant labor, um, connecting uh, histories of labor struggles with current struggles for migrant justice. Could you talk about why making that link is important? Um, yes, Arizona or Latinos are not a monolingual um, group. Um, 
climate change is a Latino issue, an immigrant issue. Immigration is an immigrant issue. Workers' rights is an immigrant issue. And so for us, it's so important that when we talk about the Latino community or the immigrant community here in our state, that the same uh, immigrant uh, family uh, that is struggling with their immigration status they're also struggling to get fair wages. They're also struggling. To, uh, their kids are also struggling to get access to um, to good quality uh, public education. And so, all of um, they're also struggling with the polluted air we're breathing. And so, for us, it's so important that um, that we continue to talk about all of those issues and connect those issues um, to the immigrant. Um, fight or the immigrant struggle uh, because they're so interconnected um, and um, our, our communities are definitely being impacted by all of those things um, and they're not separate. All of those identities, all of those issues um, are connected to their everyday living from going to work, going to school, you know, going to church or even going to the park. Thank you so much. Just the last question: um, when you when you talk about um, this moment, I, you know, a lot of people here would be watching, you know, talking heads, uh, commentators on CNN or MSNBC. But for people, um, I was just wondering if if you could share your thoughts as a community organizer about the more invisible work that is happening on a community based level. Um, that carries forward the political process that is that is missing from so much of the mainstream media coverage. Definitely, at the end of the day, um, all those electoral votes or the electoral college, all of those ballots, um, all of those polling polls, um, they're people. They're real people with real stories, with real issues. Uh, people like me and you. And so for us, um, we know that while the world right now is, um, you know, running on 24 hours or live streams, talking about the electoral vote, um, the, the, I'm sorry, talking about the college, the college electoral vote, um, talking about who might win, who, how do the polls look like, we know that um, in our communities, um, our folks, you know, are waking up to a spirit that says, you know, no matter what happens, we still guide each other. And the reason why we know that is because of all the local organizing that we've been doing beyond elections, right? Um, we start January and, you know, um, also all the buzz, um, you know, the momentum that has been created for us is not a momentum, it's a movement that will, you know, continue to, to, um, to get moving and to continue to have energy around, um, you know, uh, legislative sessions across the country and our state will start in January. And there's a lot of policies, a lot of laws that are gonna be, um, you know, listened to and introduced. And I think for us, continuing to have a conversation with folks through our Lucha Listens, um, which, you know, before COVID were in-person meetings in living rooms, um, in the park, 
um, in your front yard, all of those efforts, you know, are still going to continue to happen regardless of the results of this um, election. And we already know that more people have participated um, in the history. And I think for us, that's a testament um, of the work that has been done um, all year round uh, in the state of Arizona, um, not just, you know, during an election cycle. That was a conversation with Abril Gallardo from Living United for Change in Arizona, Lucha, one of the organizations, community groups that worked very hard to vote against Trump, and also an organization that has long mobilized um, in Arizona for the rights of migrant communities, for the rights of undocumented people. I thought it was really important to hear their perspective on why mobilizing against Trump and voting against Trump was really important. This is Free City Radio. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I wanted to go to a piece of music now by Silviana Di Lorenzo. Vida, ¿qué es lo que me pasa esta tarde? Te miro y es como la primera vez. ¿Qué pasa pues? ¿Qué pasa pues? ¿Qué pasa pues? No quisiera hablarte. ¿Qué pasa pues? Eres la frase amorosa que nunca cambias. No cambias cambia. más, no cambias más, no cambias más. Eres mi pasado y mi presente. Nunca más. La que siempre me está inquietando. No cambias más, yo tengo pruebas. Siempre me atormentarás con promesas Pareces el viento que trae violines y rosas Caramelos, ya no quiero más Muchas veces no te comprendo De rosa y violines, esta tarde no quiero que me hables Porque tan solo lo siento en mi alma Cuando mienten y luego se verá Una sola palabra Palabras, palabras, palabras Escúchame Palabras, palabras, palabras Te ruego Palabras, palabras, palabras Te lo juro Hablarte, hablarte como la primera vez. ¿Qué pasa pues? ¿Qué pasa pues? ¿Qué pasa pues? No, no digo nada. ¿Qué pasa es la noche pues? que habla, la romántica noche. No cambias más, no cambias más, no cambias más. Tú eres mi sueño prohibido. Nunca más. Mi dulce esperanza. Yo sé muy bien lo que tú sientes, ya me lo explicaste bien, no hay más que hablar. Mirándote, vi en tus ojos la luna y en tu canto el grillo. Caramelos, ya no quiero más. Si no estuviera, jugaría a inventarte. 
La luna y los grillos normalmente desvelan mis noches Pero yo quiero dormirme soñando Con ese hombre que sepa sentir Que no hable tanto y sepa amarme al fin Una sola palabra Palabras, palabras, palabras Escúchame Palabras, palabras, palabras Te ruego Amor, ¿qué pasa? Palabras, palabras, palabras. ¿Qué pasa, amor? Palabras, 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 tan solo palabras hay entre los dos. This is Free City Radio. That was Silviana Di Lorenzo. Now on the show, I wanted to go to a couple of conversations I had with community voices in Michigan. Um, one of the really important aspects to why there was such a strong mobilization to vote against Trump in Michigan, particularly in the Detroit uh, region, including Dearborn, was of course uh, the Muslim community, um, which has long uh, been mobilizing for justice, uh, protesting against Trump administration policies, particularly the ban on uh, travel, that impacted a number of Muslim-majority countries. Uh, right after that announcement, there was huge protests at the international airport just uh, outside of Detroit. Uh, so I wanted to hear from a, a few voices that were really involved in mobilizing to vote against Trump in the Detroit region. First, we'll go to a short conversation I had with Imam Muhammad Ali Allahi, who is from the House of Worship, which is a mosque in the Dearborn region. Uh, and they were deeply involved in mobilizing the Muslim community uh, in Dearborn to vote against Trump. Uh, so here's our conversation. You know, these uh, last four years uh, were full of, uh, of damage, uh, too much damage for... Uh, for the country in general, I mean, we are talking not only about Muslim community that, of course, uh, you know, we have been also the victims of uh, Islamophobia, Muslim ban, and in general, you know, racism, uh, uh, white supremacy, hatred, uh, uh, domestic terrorism, this uh, like white, white nationalism. Uh, so much ignorance, so much anger and arrogance. I mean, so much things uh, been going on. But, but of course, uh, Islamophobia uh, that is not, of course, only in the United States. We know these days, like what happened in France, and uh, you know. But but unfortunately, the the presidency of uh, President uh, Trump. Uh, promoted that Islamophobia uh, to the point that uh, you know people come and they insult like a, a sacred some symbol like uh, uh, Holy Prophet Muhammad uh, peace be upon him and they call it uh, uh, 
like uh, freedom of expression. So um, uh, they don't say such a thing about racism. If you have a, a racial expression, they is not justified under the freedom of expression or anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. But looks like the the Muslims have been uh, uh, more um, uh, victims of uh, uh, what is going on uh, in the last uh, uh, four years, uh, both in the United States and also elsewhere. I mean, the foreign policies of uh, President Trump uh, uh, just uh, working with the dictators and, I mean, giving everything to Netanyahu and to uh, Ben Salman in Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, but uh, forgetting about Palestinians, forgetting about, you know, the crime against uh, journalist Khashoggi, for example, uh, what happened to him, uh, maximum pressure on uh, 85 million innocent Iranians and uh, uh, so many other things that uh, looks like and Muslim ban, of course. Uh, uh, but, you know, when we talk as as Muslim communities, uh, we we are not just talking about Islamophobia because there are some other things like climate change. That, that's not just for... Uh, you know, for, for Muslim, that's for, for everyone. So uh, we hope that uh, uh, whatever the result of this election would be, uh, somebody would uh, learn a lesson from uh, what happened because in the last four years, uh, really, it has been a loss for America. That was Imam Muhammad Ali Allahi uh, from the House of Worship in the Detroit area um, in Dearborn. In this part of the program, I am featuring voices of community activists um, in the Michigan area who were mobilizing the Muslim community to vote against Trump. Of course, the Muslim communities in Michigan were mobilizing heavily to protest the policies of the Trump administration. Um, around immigration, around social justice, around militarism and war, and particularly in protest uh, against uh, what was called the quote-unquote Muslim ban, which was essentially the barring of travel from a number of Muslim-majority countries. I spoke with Namira Islam Anani, uh, who is a community activist in Michigan, the co-founder of Muslim Anti-Racism Collaboration, Muslim Arc, which is a faith-based human rights organization um, that focuses on racial justice. Uh, our conversation really was about looking at the intersections of struggles in Michigan and um, wanted to share that conversation here. So my name is Namira Salmanani, and my background, I'm a lawyer and a graphic designer. Um, I co-founded the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, so Muslim Arc, back in 2014. Um, and that's a education organization focused on anti-racism. So for me, you know, I was born in Detroit, raised in Michigan, I've kind of been hopping around the state my entire life. And one thing that's really struck out um, is just the Michigan community, especially the Muslim community in Michigan, is there's so much diversity in terms of racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, at the same time, oftentimes our religious spaces 
uh, reflect the general segregation that, that happens throughout the Detroit region. So we see that even within the Muslim spaces, and that's been something that's definitely affected me kind of uh, growing up in the state and in my own kind of personal family history. So my work has really been focused on thinking about social justice from that lens, especially like a faith-based social justice lens, um, and especially encouraging Muslims to think about, one, what is our role as Muslims? How are we moving toward um, an increased uh a better world, really, and increased um, goodness in the world, increased goodness in the world, right, both for ourselves and for the communities that we're in. Um, and so especially for voting, that's been something, making sure that people understand, one, how to access the ballot, right, um, but then also thinking about just expressing and contextualizing the need for the vote. So my work uh, is especially as a lawyer, especially as somebody who who works in organizing, has been thinking about analysis and organizing especially, um, has been able to provide some of those, uh, fill in some of those gaps for community members. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the key issues that um, the Muslim community in Michigan has um, you know, what issues that have been at the forefront, I I can imagine that, you know, there was a lot of discussion about Michigan, of course, in the American cable news networks in the last 48 hours, especially. Um, a lot of discussion about, quote unquote, the white working class, but not that much discussion about, you know, the really uh, major role that the Muslim community plays, especially around Detroit, but also beyond. Um, and also the issues that the Muslim community has faced under Trump. So I'm wondering if you could highlight some of those points. Sure. Um, That's a great question. I think uh, in Michigan in particular, because of the diversity of of Muslims, especially from racial and ethnic backgrounds, I mean, this is a state where we have Dearborn, right, which is commonly talked about, but this large concentration of Arab Americans, large concentration of Muslims, um, here in Michigan, but this is also a state that was, you know, the home of Temple Number One, um, where Malcolm X preached, and you know, the Nation of Islam, and and has such a strong, uh, you know, Black Muslim, African American Muslim history here in Detroit, um, especially with Detroit being the largest Black city in the country. Uh, and then we also have Hamtramck, which was the first Muslim majority city council, um, a city that is very strongly represented by Bangladeshi and Yemeni Muslims. And aside from that, we have Muslims of so many different backgrounds, West Africans, Bosnians, Albanians, um, certainly you know, white Muslim converts. Uh, and, and so I think when we're thinking about what does the Muslim vote look like, I think we're really looking at how the racial, the intersection of like faith identity as well as racial identity, Muslims re- represent and reflect um, the communities that they come from that are not their faith communities as well. So certainly some of the vote is influenced by faith, right? But there's so many issues that we should be thinking about as Muslim issues and that so many Muslims in their day-to-day lives are thinking about as central and key issues for this vote, um, which range, right? They range from foreign policy, thinking about climate change, healthcare, jobs, education, all of these things that are impacting you know, the day-to-day lives, um, but especially thinking about uh, police brutality and thinking about systemic racism, thinking about immigration, um, all of these things, especially somewhere like Michigan that is a border state. We often don't think about the borders in the north. 
but Michigan has been subject to ice. Um, and that influence of being near Canada and near the Canadian border um, has certainly had an impact within the community. Um, organizations locally like Abisa, which works with um, African Muslims, uh, led by Sadie Farr, you know, that kind of organization, seeing the impact on African Muslim immigrants within Michigan, um, seeing the impact on, you know, Arab Americans in the area, on South Asian Muslims in the area, uh, we're seeing this impact across racial and across ethnic lines. Um, so especially for something like this election, um, we also have to recognize for Michigan, thinking about, you know, Detroit and the surrounding suburbs, especially thinking about Detroit water shutoff, water crisis, um, all of these things, having a water crisis in a state that is surrounded by the Great Lakes, right? So especially in these last elections, we're considered a purple state. We went strongly for Obama, but then uh, with the, the Clinton versus Trump election, went for Trump. And so there's been this big question. Um, seeing Michigan as a battleground state has been very interesting growing up here and, and noticing you know, these shifts and these trends. And so this year, I think uh, the Muslim vote even though people aren't necessarily discussing it to that extent, I think the conversation around, you know, black voters, around voters of color, um, thinking about that, especially in Michigan, given how much representation we have in especially Southeast Michigan and how much diversity we have, it's really important to not um, erase those narratives of, of the people who are here and who have, have voted. There's a, a point that, feels very far from the mainstream discussion around the relationship between Islam and uh, the United States, um, which, of course, goes back to its origins. Um, people, at least in mainstream media discussions, often associate um, Islam in political context with contemporary discussions around immigration or conflict. But in fact, there's such a long history. You pointed to the black Muslim community in Detroit. But, you know, of course, the relationship goes all the way back to the founding sin, as it's called in regards to slavery and, and, and Muslim Africans from, from West Africa. Um, how important do you think it is uh, in terms of thinking about uh, the contemporary context of identity in the U.S. for there to be uh, a more serious coming to terms with the integral part that the Islamic faith plays in American cultural life. I, I, I'm just, last thing I'll say, I, I remember that, that all that praise that John McCain got when, during the election, there was some sort of debate mm -hmm. thing that happened where um, John McCain was praised because this racist in the audience basically said, you know, Barack Obama is a Muslim, and John McCain said, no, he's not, he's a good guy, and they still play this on mainstream networks, but John yes. McCain, of course, is endorsing, mm -hmm. endorsing the racism here. Anyways, if you could comment on that, it would be really appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Um, the nuances are, are much appreciated. And this speaks to so much um, as to the characterization of Muslims in the United States. Um, that town hall moment, uh, such a such an illustrative moment, right? So the town hall moment, I think another very similar moment was the 2016 election with Clinton um, at the DNC, you know, talking about Muslims as being, you know, the front of uh, the strongest allies in the fight against terrorism, right? So when we're looking at this, this is very much a bipartisan uh, framing that is often used about American Muslims, especially post 9-11, around 
uh, essentially a national security framework, uh, placing Muslims within that framework, linking to terrorism. You know, is this Muslim a good Muslim or a bad Muslim? Um, are they with us in this fight for uh, against terror or are they against us? So echoing, you know, Bush's kind of rhetoric as well, are you with us or against us? And so we see this as a very much a bipartisan kind of approach um, to thinking about American Muslims, and especially after 9-11, um, that's been very common. But like you mentioned, Muslims were here at the very uh, founding of this nation on those double, you know, the, the two twin evils of genocide and of the enslavement of Africans. And you know, the approximate um, estimates come in at like a third of these enslaved Africans for Muslim. And so when we're looking at this and then thinking about the legal history, when we go back to the history of this country, um, even when it comes to who was sent, right, amongst uh, enslaved Africans who was being brought here forcibly, there was rhetoric um, in Europe about don't send the Muslims because they cause trouble. They foment revolts. <laughs> they foment rebellion. They are unruly, they're, they can read, they're educated, um, so don't send them. And you had kings in Europe who were having this discourse back before this nation was even founded. So it's not as if Muslims only came on the scene in, after 9-11. And so people oftentimes, uh, part of it is the racialization of Muslims as a brown and foreign category, which completely erases black Muslims, erases that history, divorces that history from you know, the history of the immigrant Muslim. Um, and then, especially nowadays, and I think that's part of the, the difficulty that I sometimes have with, with the idea around, like, a Muslim vote, even, because it often gets, gets paired with other phrases around, like, the black vote, the Latino vote, um, and the Muslim vote, which sometimes really reinforces that division that happens, where it's like, oh, the Muslim vote is the, the immigrants, you know, or the people who are not black, not Latino, when we have such strong black Muslim and Latino Muslim as well communities. Um, and so that the artificial distinction, the racialization of Muslims into this uh, similarly as a race, racial group or an ethnic group, um, I think this election is also showing how those shortcomings uh, the, the tendency for the national narrative to flatten and, and turn any group into a monolith is really hampering uh, solid organizing tactics. Um, and a great example of this is the discussion around the Latino vote. People are like, oh, you know, Hispanics have not been coming out for Biden. And it's, and it's really just a lack of, of savviness and a lack of nuance about understanding that who are you referencing when you talk about Latinos? Um, and similarly, I think people fall into that same um, trap when they talk about Muslims. And so the last thing I'll mention on this point is really just the reality that, and this is why I, I decided to move into this field of human rights education and training, because it's the lack of um, proper education on history, on the history especially of this country and of a people's history of this nation um, and that's something that the lack of this is resulting in a lot of this clunky analysis that we see, especially around something like electoral organizing. That was Namira Islam Anani, uh, who is a community activist um, in Michigan, uh, who is deeply involved in uh, mobilizing against Trump um, in Michigan. And I thought it was really important to look at that. Now I'm going to go to a piece of music which is a collaboration between Invincible and Finale, 
this is called Locusts. Uh, this is two artists in the Detroit area. Fires that really devastated this community happened between uh, late 1997 and 1999. In that period of time, they probably had at least five or 600 fires down here, and I lived through that. When, when there was a fire, I would make one call, and it would ring all the way around the community. Is it you? Are you all right? Whatever. And then it would come back to my house. We had one of the most beautiful communities when I moved here that you could imagine. Condos were out on my old turf. For what it's worth, soul got left in the earth. On a surf, just stood in front of Compton where the Hudson Builder spoke first and said, I was here. Old bricks all over downtown. The Sears with the robot attachment. Purple gang used to move to your block like a mafia pageant. Move around in my town with spit his talk. And if you leave, forget us and try to come back. I hope you turn into a pillar of salt. Ajax came and crack in the concrete. That's a lost and forgotten piece of the deep. We'll never see in the book of paper replaced with a tip casino. Strip mall, liquor store, another stadium doubling as a palladium. Eateries, Speaks to me. Now watch yesterday get swept away beneath a pile of debris. Committee's picking from a lottery for the hottest riverfront property. Sign over your deed, shocking to see us go from people mover to people mover. Let the people choose a better way. They set up shop and spread away. Landmarks come and go like a john with a pro. Let it straight and they run up on the trade for consumption. So I look back and see my city under construction. I look back and see my city under construction. With the locusts. Surround and suffocate in my city in China. Ravaging the crops, making the situation. But we staying, never let the locusts approach us Locusts and buzzers circle and hover above the Abandoned houses, shattered windows with the crooked shutter Cross the street, construct a cookie cutter Condominium, line of wood, but it's the prime meridian You divide the city and in the hood Wonder why you pay two times the premium Saving red line in the dark skin Owners of homes where they loan with a shark's fin Arson of property, probably for their insurance policy It's a prophecy that's self-fulfilling They claim to cure us of poverty, but Serving removal of residents for urban renewal. The Reverend is the real to hit the saving hill. Yeah, they even buy ugly houses and it's memorabilia of a myth of a city that's a mystery. Auto industries widow on the auction floor. They start to bid low on houses with hanging gutters and peeling shingles. Purchase at a nervous pace and a cadence. I heard a wrecking ball hit a building that's mistaken for vacant. The sleeping city awakened by bulldozers and the wool pulled over our eyes. It comes as no surprise. Why to rent some more from the French to to the illages, trying to pillage the village and milk it for all that it's worth while they're killing us. But we still got resilience against the locusts. Surround and suffocate my city and trying to ravage the crop, making the situation hopeless. We stay in focus, never let the locusts approach us. So, the issues of racism, classism, in terms of moving out of the city and leaving it desolate was a very, very uh, intentional kind of thing. And now folks can come back, get the land, get the buildings and stuff for virtually nothing and make huge profits. Selective memory, convenient amnesia Enemies scheming on land seizures Pretend to be well-meaning but stampeders I know you're not supposed to bite the hand of feeds ya But it's poison and spreading justice like fungus candida Predatory planning, eminent domain, mow down Motown For a parking lot next to the game Empty sentiment of development for pennies to gain Forget memory lane, this is history It's like erasing proof, only remembering Eminem's name Many stories, only one written and pen will remain With jobs 
we at least in a drought Met a construction worker hates demolishing buildings But gotta feed the seeds and the spouse Told me the city pushes people into leaving their house They cut the lights and gas, it freezes them out Who decided the divide between suburb and ghetto corner Henry Ford swinging his chain, Nazi medal of honor Hey, what about where Hastings was? Hey, what about uh, Black Bottom? And see, the thing is that uh, all of this was connected. But when that freeway went through, people started getting disconnected. I'm looking at this strip with a lot of your body, she probably shook them hips. The malnourished, the wild flourish, amongst style murderers who want to pile dirt on us. The word on the street is that we won't last long. And is it me? But if the history of my city was passed on, could we physically and spirit and mind find a way to move and grab at this song? And I was young, but snuck in mahogany for stars in orbit. Unsupported foundation, bought it sound, loud rape, but now it's a bar where many women get the frequent. Spit a slick thing in each other's ear. Sip a mix, drinking beer for sport, not a block and not here. And how we Got here, you never know. Showed a broken up hip hop shop board on VH1. Like, hey, come in, you see where they from? And that shit was too hard for me to chew like I hate gum. And y'all can play dumb like Jim, man. All I want is another lush lounge for us. Us, a new United Sounds around the bus. Bus, people can see us before the debris and dust and what was. I am not trying to rap, man. Time travel. The ideal city is where the residents have an input. They know they they feel they have an input in the development and they benefit from the development and when you have development like that the spirit of the development is good that was invincible with final uh, with their track locusts uh here on free city radio thanks for being with us i'm your host stefan christoph um, wanted to now go to um, a perspective from the Sunrise Movement, uh, which is a national climate justice organ- organization in the United States. Um, I spoke with Nicholas Jansen, who's in Michigan, but talks more generally to the struggle for climate justice. Um, that that uh, really intersects with multiple administrations. It's not just, uh, of course, the Trump administration that has not uh, enacted policies of climate justice. Um, it is also, of course, uh, past democratic administrations and I thought it was really important to get this perspective. Sunrise Movement is really a, an important uh, part of the climate justice action oriented uh, movement right now in the United States. In Michigan and Ohio we're going to see fluctuations from severe flooding to severe droughts and in 2012 I was graduating high school and I was really radicalized by this drought that happened this summer. I went, go, went to go kayaking with one of my best friends, Manny. Um, I'm one of our favorite rivers, um, the Maple Grove River, and within like 30 seconds of putting our kayak in the river, it bottomed out because the river was so dry. Like we just there was just a trickle of water going down, and it was just so daunting to see. And what really made that summer stick with me though is um, I grew up in a farming community, and that drought um, in 2012 ended up being one of the worst droughts in the Midwest in over half a century. And despite being in the state surrounded by 20% of the world's surface freshwater, um, the farming community I grew up. Grew up in a lot of farm struggle that year. Um, we had to get federal assistance from the Obama administration to bail out farms all around Michigan just because the drought was so severe, crops were failing. And so that's what it's looking like in rural areas. Then, then conversely, you also have floods. And so we had two major dam breaks here in Michigan this year just because there's so much water, our old infrastructure wasn't able to contain it all. And then you go into the cities 
where like on these hot days when you have these dry periods, you have the heat island effect where cities are getting hotter and hotter and more unbearable to live, and that pollution gets more capped in by the heat. And so we know that like some of our cities, especially our poor black and brown communities, the, um, from the extraction of fossil fuels, they face the highest rates of pollution, of asthma, of cancer, and that only gets worse as the planet gets hotter. Then also, yeah, with the flooding as well, we have up outdated infrastructure and so you go in cities like Detroit and you have these floods that are happening and it just floods streets, floods homes and it just really damages the people that have limited resources to adapt. How has it been to protest these issues um, in, in Michigan? Um, yeah, if you could describe some of the actions you've done and, and, and how was it mm. to organize in the context yeah, of the Trump question. administration? Kind of like the Droughts and floods of highs and lows there, it's like highs and lows with these actions. Like, um, yeah, when the global climate strikes were happening last year and just like going at the Capitol here in Lansing with hundreds of other young people, I've never been in a crowd with almost exclusively young people and just having like teenagers go up on mic and just share their stories about how they're scared but they're fighting were some of the most like powerful and inspirational moments of my, of my life and why, why I'm here. I joke around like, I came to Sunrise for our theory of change, which I went over just a minute ago, but I stayed for the people, and it's just like the young people I'm able to meet and organize and help develop through my work and through these actions is just so empowering because it lets you know like <laughs> um, the young people, they are the gen generation that are going to change stuff, our generation, Generation Z, and that's the t stuff I really live for. And also, though, um, there's sometimes it's really hard. Like We have actions, like we had an action with the Ann Arbor Hub, they were pressuring Representative Debbie Dingle for a year um, plus to um, support the Green New Deal resolution. And, and the culmination of that campaign ended with like a couple of arrests arrest happening in her office when they were sitting in her office. And she called a meeting with the group to bring in our state's attorney general, another congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, and like a UAW president. Uh, and it was like, so we were, we were just like on the precipice of like getting our representative that we've been practicing for a year to support the Green New Deal. And she still balked at it. And that was a very discouraging moment where we felt like we were doing everything we could. And just like even the people that are supposed to be on our side, this Democrat, one of the most progressive districts in the country, still wasn't able to shoot it. It just like those moments where you just realize, yeah, the West is burning. The hurricanes are getting stronger. Floods are getting stronger. We have so far to go. And even the people on our side aren't supposed to be on our side. So not even having organized against Trump, but even the people on our side don't go far enough in some cases. So last question, uh, Nicholas. Um, in terms of uh, this moment, I mean, the Sunrise Movement has been working um, seriously in many communities uh, to organize protests and actions to bring up the ways that the climate crisis impacts um, local communities, uh, rural and urban, in different ways. A lot of protests and direct actions. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Sunrise did mobilize to vote against Trump. We have a mantra, like, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. We work with people when it makes sense. And this is one of those clear cases where, as we see with the past four years of a Trump presidency, there's no road to, like, significant climate legislation under a Trump presidency. So that was our number one goal, was to end Trump's presidency. And unfortunately, that left us with Biden. And we know Biden is not great, but we need to support him to be able to give us at least a roadmap to work with um, if Trump was out of office. And so Biden has also proved he's willing to be pushed. Um, we gave him initially an F 
on his climate plan, but because of the push of our movement and other youth movements around the country, Biden has been able to build a more ambitious climate program. And then the second, and so like we know we're working with them now, but also we're um, we're going to the newest phase of our movement where we're going to be pressuring Biden and other Democrats alike that like you're doing good work and we need you to be better and, and really set this mandate that like we can't take compromise like we you're out of time. And then the second part of that is like yeah we're we're a movement we're never for one election we're never for one candidate. It's it's in a nutshell it's Bernie Mac, Bernie's message not me us. In order to get the systematic, large-scale, drastic change we need, it's not just going to be one politician or a handful of politicians saying, do this. We need millions of people in their communities understanding the transformation we need, working on city council races, on mayors, and just like getting their communities to mobilize. Because at the end of the day, we need a World War II-sized mobilization um, of our entire economy to address this crisis. And that's not going to happen with just a couple of candidates saying this is what we're going to do. It's going to happen when millions of people in conjunction with those candidates understand the change we need and are working in their communities to make it happen. And that's what we're building for. We're not going to be done here. We're not going to be done next year. This is going to be the decade of the Green New Deal. And we're going to continue building in our communities and across the country to get the change we need. That was an interview with Nicholas Jensen from the Sunrise Movement. Uh, Nicholas is based in Michigan, uh, but Sunrise Movement is across the United States, and I wanted to highlight that voice. Uh, this is Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. And I now want to go to a piece of music by Rival Consoles. This is the track on travel.
That was On Travel by Rival Consoles. Uh, love that entire album, which is Persona. Check it out if you can. I wanted to now go to a journalist. I spoke with Ryan Grimm, uh, who is the Washington, D.C. bureau chief uh, for The Intercept. I spoke with Ryan uh, about the changing political landscape in the United States, particularly in Arizona and Georgia, and also the role of the squad political voices like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, how they're changing the political landscape, the political discourse in the United States. Um, you know, and of course, The Intercept is an important reference point in this context. So here's the conversation with Ryan Grimm. You know, you now have a, a uh, center of gravity, or I don't know if it's center of gravity yet, but it, it's a pol- at least a poll that is uh, strong enough on, on the left within the Democratic Party that it, that it that it uh, can't can't be ignored and has the ability, um, you know, to win uh, to win primary elections in uh, in races everywhere from swing districts to, to deep blue districts and uh, and to re- and and to uh, capture the spotlight. You know, the centrist Democrats, you know, complain that that they're overshadowed by. Ocasio Cortez and the um, and the other members of, of of the squad, but that's not because the squad has any massive media ecosystem, you know, uh, or echo chamber behind it, uh, or has any any massive amount of resources to get its message out. Uh, you know, they they say things and they stand for things that are interesting. And that a lot of people want to, to talk about. And so as a result, they are, are, you know, kind of have a disproportionate 
impact on the on the conversation, and that that drives Democrats crazy. But it's, there's nothing stopping uh, the other Democrats from themselves being interesting, uh, except themselves. I'm wondering if you could speak about Georgia. Uh, talking about mm-hmm. Democrats, the significance of what is happening there, especially in the year of George Lewis's passing. Right. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating story, uh, and, it's, and it's simultaneously kind of secular uh, or you know, devel- developmental shifts in, in Georgia where the, the suburbs have continued to grow and become increasingly dense and as they become increasingly dense, the people there, and this is a true of people in the suburbs all over the country, need, need a bit more government. They need a bit more cooperative approach um, to, to running their communities. And they, and they have shifted uh, more democratic. They have, you know, as, you know, in, in, in general, college-educated voters have, have been shifting more and more uh, de- democratic the same time, uh, Stacey Abrams in particular, um, but a lot of other organizers on the ground have been pulling together uh, the black community in, in Georgia and uh, registering people, uh, persuading them of the, um, the value of, of getting out to vote and, and you know, really pressing upon them the reality that, that Atlanta and its suburbs uh, coupled with the, uh, the couple of other small cities in, in Georgia, can actually be the governing center of, of the state. That um, it doesn't that the state doesn't have to be run by its uh, outer rural communities because the numbers are, are finally shifting in uh, in Democrats' favor in, in Georgia and. And if, and if Democrats can, you know, as the suburbs continue to grow, if, if Democrats can continue to keep together that coalition, uh, then you're going to see, um, uh, then you're, then you're going to see the electoral map shift because, um, you know, that's a, that's a significant state um, for, for Democrats to pick up. And if they continue to hold Arizona and Nevada and New Mexico and, and, and Georgia, and continue to make you know North Carolina, et cetera, competitive. The Republicans nationally are going to are going to remain on the defensive. Thank you so much. Just the last question: um, Juan Gonzalez on Democracy Now used this term "brown wall" in terms of describing the massive shift of votes within the Latinx community in the Southwest and Center South of the United States. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk about that mobilization. Uh, the fact that so many people were registered, particularly in Arizona, and why it's significant. Yeah, and Aida Chavez, who writes for The Intercept, has a has a, a couple of good stories on this that that people should check out. And she's been she lived lived in Arizona for a while and has been been covering the shifts there for a while. Um, uh, you know, essentially, Joe Arpaio, Arpaio is the one who kind of delivered Arizona to Democrats. He was this you know, uh, racist, fascist sheriff in Maricopa County who, uh, you know, implemented some, some of them like the most ridiculously unconstitutional, uh, uh, assaults on, on, on people in, in, across the country. Um, and there was a, a massive organizing effort to push back against him and it was successful. 
uh, Trump had to actually pardon him eventually. And that, that organized constituency has not left the field. You know, once, once, you, once you organize a constituency into a political force, it can exert its political power in, in other arenas as well. And that's what, you, that's what you saw in particular in Arizona. And it points the way forward for, for Democrats, that if they, that if they want to you know, win, win the support of Hispanic communities in, in an organized way, they need to help organize them into political constituencies that are fighting uh, for material objectives. And, and, and once they achieve those objectives, then they, then they realize the power that they have in their hands and they, and they continue to use it. That was Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept, Ryan Grimm. And this is Free City Radio. Uh, thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Now we're going to go to a piece of music by Amir Amiri, who plays Santur, um, an artist from Tehran who's living here in Montreal.
That was a piece of music by Amir Amiri, who's an artist from Tehran who lives here in Montreal. I wanted to share their work here on Free City Radio. Uh, it is November 10th. It is not long after the election. And um, one issue that is, of course, of huge significance um, in the context of U.S. progressive movements is the struggle for Medicare for All. Uh, this is a struggle that the Bernie Sanders campaign pushed forward very strongly. Um, and uh, one of the organizations that was really involved in pushing this was Physicians for a National Healthcare Program. That's pnhp.org. Uh, they worked closely with the uh, campaign of Bernie Sanders to highlight the voices of doctors in support of Medicare for All. So I spoke with Dr. Steffi Woodhandler, who is one of the spokespeople for Physicians for a National Healthcare Program. Uh, they're based in the New York City area, but uh, have campaigned across the U.S. on this issue. And I wanted to speak with them about the sustaining importance of the Medicare for All campaign and what that means post-election 2020. Medicare for All is extremely popular with the electorate. Uh, it struggles to get electoral traction because it is opposed by our very powerful private insurance industry and our very powerful uh, drug industry in the U.S. Uh, but exit polls, including an exit poll from Fox News, the very conservative news outlet, showed a majority of voters a majority of all voters endorse the idea of Medicare for All. So uh, it's a very strange issue uh, in that what the population wants, what they say they want, uh, doesn't always uh, get expressed through the two leading parties. Certainly in the Democratic primary, a lot of the primary was fought around the issue of Medicare for All. So both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, two of the leading candidates, endorsed the idea of Medicare for All. Uh, that idea is very popular. They obviously didn't get the nomination, uh, but the idea remains very popular with the American people. Thank you so much. Um, could you maybe just talk a little bit about the uh, influence of uh pharmaceutical corporations and also the private health insurance industry on the the media. I, I'm thinking about CNN as an example, which is always, you know, held up as this liberal uh, institution in terms of popular rhetoric. But we do see their relationship, not just CNN, but other media outlets with these dependent um, exchanges around advertising and, and healthcare. Could you talk about that and why, why it's important to understand these, in, these private health institutions' relationship to the media? Well, absolutely. Uh, there was a PAC to oppose Medicare for All. Uh, it was called a Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, but it, it was just a conservative PAC to oppose Medicare for All. And uh, they got most of their money from the private health insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And in the summer before the Iowa caucuses, the Iowa caucuses are the first race in the presidential primary, if you will. In the summer before the Iowa caucuses in Iowa, half of all political advertising in the entire state was purchased by this right-wing pack that opposed Medicare for All. 
so the Iowa voters were just deluged with advertisements telling them Medicare for all would be disruptive and it would destroy health care. Uh, and, you know, so this was quite influential, we believe, in the Iowa caucuses and leading uh, many folks to believe uh, that Medicare for all was, was not supported by uh, data or science. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, truth of course. The data supports the idea that um, Medicare for All would improve coverage uh, and do so much more affordably than any of the other options. But this major advertising campaign uh, was really uh, targeted at the Iowa caucus voters. Um, CNN, like all of our media, or most of our media anyway, is very dependent on advertising dollars from corporations and um, that's just a reality if you run your media as a for-profit business that you will be dependent on advertising revenue. And, uh, of course, the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry are major advertisers. I noticed that um, in a lot of the discussion within the media, we didn't hear uh, opinions from that many physicians or, or physician organizations that support Medicare for All, uh, who could give a, um, a reasoned and experienced argument about this. Um, although we did hear a lot of commentators sort of trying to dismiss um, the proposals. You know, you mentioned both Warren and Bernie Sanders did support it. Um, why do you think it's important for uh, the mainstream media to also to, to hear the voices of, you know, organizations like yours who actually have direct experience and can speak to the reasons on a, both a medical, social, political, and economic level why Medicare for All is viable and important? Yeah. Well, Physicians for a National Health Program has uh, about 23,000 physician members and has uh, developed a lot of uh, arguments and research uh, really scientifically grounded research showing that uh, you can cover everyone affordably. Uh, it, to people living in Canada, they're aware that that is a possibility, but believe it or not, uh, it seems controversial in the United States and something that you need to to prove. You know, we are spending 18% of GDP on health care right now in this country. I think Canada is spending 11 or 12, and, and yet we don't cover everyone the way Canada does. So, um, we do need to repeatedly inform the American people that that's a real possibility and real political choice, and that's what Physicians for a National Health Program has done. We certainly uh, do a lot of media work. I think uh, the major out outlets have been very skimpy, let's say, in their coverage of the concepts of Medicare for All. They often cover it like it's a ball game who's winning, who's losing, and without really delving into how it would work and its affordability. Uh, I do want to say that it's very important to have alternative media because without the alternative media, uh, it would be very difficult to keep the, the larger media outlets honest. If they really could completely <clears throat> monopolize the media environment, we would be in a much worse shape with much less ability to get ideas out. So I do want to salute the um, alternative media as a really important venue for, for speaking the truth, but also in speaking that truth, kind of holding the rest of the media accountable. 
thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts on that. Just final question: Can you can you talk a bit more about your organization and uh, the importance of the continued efforts to uh, push Medicare for All uh, campaign in the United States, even of course, no matter what happens in the election? Yes. Well, uh, certainly uh, the election. Uh, which does look like it's leaning toward Biden at the moment, uh, has been much too close for comfort. I think uh, the Democrats, in fact, uh, even though they're, I believe they are, will do a much better job than Trump, uh, the Democrats have really failed to articulate a vision of a more just and equal society, and that's what you're going to need to really mobilize uh, voters in the elections, and the Democrats really failed to do that, and part of failing to do that was abandoning Medicare for All, despite the fact that it is immensely popular with voters. So I do think that if the Democrats are going to um, be able to change things for the better, they're going to have to mobilize voters by speaking to these economic security issues, health security issues like Medicare for All, uh, there's another election in two years. Uh, a third of the Senate uh, gets elected every two years in the United States, the entire House of Representatives. So if the Democrats are really able to embrace Medicare for all and offer something to uh, the voters that they really want, then they'll do much better uh, in the election in two years than they would otherwise um, so I think Medicare for All, it's very important for the health of the American people. You know, even with the Affordable Care Act, we, uh, you know, we have almost 30 million uninsured people. If the Supreme Court overturns the Affordable Care Act when they hear the case in November, in just a week or so, uh, if they overturn it, there will be 60 million uninsured Americans, 50 to 60 million uninsured Americans. So we have some very, very big problems in the United States. We have tens of millions of uninsured people. We have perhaps uh, 30 to 40,000 people who die every year because they lack health insurance. And uh, we need uh, those, uh, those uh, issues addressed. And certainly a Biden ad administration and uh, hopefully a Biden administration with a better Senate uh, after the next election uh, should should really address uh, Medicare for All. That was Dr. Steffi Woodhandler of Physicians for a National Healthcare Program in the US. I wanted to highlight uh, their perspective and the sustaining importance of the struggle for Medicare for All in the United States and how that uh, plays forward uh, beyond administrations. Um, and uh, I felt that was uh, really important to highlight. This has been the Free City Radio podcast. This is the 15th edition. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. Give us a rating if you like it. And you can um, get in touch anytime. My email is stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Please get in touch with any programming ideas. Uh, I'd be really happy to uh, share them uh, here on the show. We're going to go out now with a piece of music by my brother, recently released, Jordan Kristoff. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you have a good day. I hope you're well wherever you are. Take care.